If you are expecting a detailed historical treatise on transcendentalism, you will be sorely disappointed with what I'm about to share. If you would like to dive into some of that history, I've created resources that are available outside of the parlor during coffee hour. Instead, today, I'm going to do what I'm paid to do, and that is to make you think. The transcendentalist movement and its connection to abolition is merely my point of departure, to have you think and consider the impact of how we are told about our history within Unitarian Universalism. And for those of you who aren't steeped in Unitarian Universalist history, this may be some education. And I'm happy to answer questions after the service. So to get us started, I, I want to start with um, an excerpt from a Unitarian Universalist uh, curriculum religious education curriculum, Tapestry of Faith. Part of it talks about UU history. And there's this one story that uh, is about Theodore Parker that's re really pertinent, I think. This is the story of Theodore Parker, a Unitarian minister who was determined to do whatever he could to end slavery in the United States. His powerful sermons were legendary, this is also the story of Millard Fillmore, whose actions earned him the contempt of Theodore Parker and abolitionists everywhere. He became the president of the United States in 1850. The curriculum goes on to say, but the story begins with two runaway slaves, a married couple from Macon, Georgia, who planned a daring escape from slavery. Ellen Craft had skin so light that she could easily pass for white. She decided to disguise herself as an ailing Southern gentleman traveling to Philadelphia for medical care. Her husband, William Craft, whose skin was dark, would pretend to be the master's doting slave. Together, they would travel 1,000 miles to freedom in the North. Time and again, I read narratives like this one from Unitarian Universalist history, and I sigh. I sigh because this curriculum tells us that the only framework for understanding Ellen and William Craft is through the lens of their situation of being oppressed people. They are given the label slave. They are not even identified as African or of African descent. It also puts Theodore Parker at the center of the story. I will always wonder why we don't just tell the story of Ellen and William Craft, who devised the plan to come north, survived the journey, and then ultimately had to leave liberal Boston for fear of being captured under the Fugitive Slave Act, signed into law by Unitarian President Millard Fillmore. Parker certainly deserves his due, for he offered them both defense and protection, and he was their minister. But why don't we name the brave people actually at the center of the story as Unitarian heroes? On January 8th of this coming year, John Buren's former UUA president, will speak here about his new book, Conflagration, how the transcendentalists sparked 
the American struggle for racial, gender, and social justice. It is an ambitious title for an ambitious book. He does go into the same story with some more detail, and I'm, I'm grateful for that and grateful to the legacy of William and Ellen Craft. I've long been fascinated by the transcendentalists dating all the way back to my high school years, and certainly as a UU minister and through my formation, I regularly reflect on their work. Still, as I read his book, I'm brought back to a blog post that I wrote at the beginning of this year. In that post, I said, more and more, I hear people of color within Unitarian Universalism questioning the resonance of its historical theology and challenging its re relevance to a modern world. When we are introduced to Unitarian Universalism, we are often presented with a procession of white men as reference points. We are also told when we challenge the racist and patriarchal perspectives of Theodore Parker and Ralph Waldo Emerson that we have to remember that they were men of a different time. I believe that as people of color in the 21st century, we deserve much more than excuses and exclusively white history. I'm not yet entirely through Reverend Buren's book, but I've not encountered many people of color in his conflagration, which leads me to believe that in the end, it will feel to me more like a smolder than a blaze. Quite possibly, though, this is not the point of his work. <laughs> Nor maybe should it be. Unitarian and Universalist history in the United States in the 19th century is almost entirely white. Fact. We cannot go back and change that. It is also overwhelmingly male. But that has to do with both denominations, Unitarians and Universalists, resisting the ordination of women. Olympia Brown was ordained as a Universalist minister in 1863, and the American Unitarian Association did not recognize the 1851 ordination of Antoinette Brown Blackwell as a Unitarian minister until 1878. Women were not admitted to Harvard Divinity School until 1955. As the old saying goes, history is written by the victors. I think my point is that maybe we should just accept how white and male this history is and get on with it. By this measure, then, I wonder if much like the Confederate statues, there is a place for this history. <laughs> maybe it belongs in a time capsule or a museum of some kind. Now, having read The Transcendentalists ex extensively for the last 30 years and having passed ministerial fellowship committee and accepted fellowship in this denomination and having great respect for my friend, Reverend John Burens, I understand that what I'm saying is tantamount to heresy in the UU orbit. Still, I cannot be quiet about it. The history as it is told does not inspire me whereas the story of Ellen and William Craft does. For me, it comes down to two words, fugitive and slave. 
As I review the literature by some of the much lauded minds that created the foundations for the transcendentalists and the wealth of scholarship and thought that paved the way for modern Unitarian Universalism, I'm horribly aware of the recurrence of these two words, fugitive and slave. Not just in Reverend Buren's book, but in Thoreau, Theodore Parker, Emerson, and certainly William Ellery Channing, there is a tone of distance that makes me wonder if the number of lifetime interactions with blacks for these men could be counted on the fingers of one hand. Channing, in particular, is conflicted. His book, Slavery, that I quoted from before, published in 1830, caused a ruckus, 1835, excuse me, caused a ruckus because the surprisingly conservative Unitarians of the day felt it went too far in pushing for abolition. And the true abolitionists, William Lloyd Garrison, etc., felt it didn't go far enough. I just find parts of it sickening. Channing writes, of all races of men, the African is the mildest and most susceptible of attachment. He loves where the European would hate. He watches the life of a master whom the North American Indian in like circumstances would stab to the heart. The African is affectionate. Is this a reason for holding him in chains? Now, I don't want to pretend that the 19th century Unitarian's view of enslaved African people is simple or that it can any way, in any way be measured by today's racial lens. But I must call to issue the unending tendency, tendency among their work, and hence even the work of our modern scholars, who I respect, to only view the African origin person through the lens of their status as oppressed in relation to whites. In my own reignited study of the transcendentalist period in UUU history, I found myself wondering if there were any writers who took it upon themselves to put forward the status and full humanity of African-descended people outside of the context of their involuntary servitude to white people. Certainly. Black writers of the era did this. People such as David Walker in his Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, 1830, as did William Cooper Nell in his numerous writings for L William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator. But what of white voices? Spurred on by, my, by the brief mentions in the introduction to Buren's book, I did some digging into texts by Lydia Mariah Child, and came up with one of the most explicit statements about the humanity of African-descended people by a white author of the period. Not Channing or Parker, but Child, who was Unitarian and an important and well-educated part of the circle of proto-transcendentalists, and a woman. She wrote the following words that introduce a chapter in her work titled, An Appeal in Favor of That Class of Americans Called Africans. 
she says, in order to decide what is our duty concerning the Africans and their descendants, we must first clearly make up our minds whether they are or are not human beings, whether they have or have not the same capacities for improvement as other men. The intellectual inferiority of the Negroes is a common, though most absurd, apology for personal prejudice and the oppressive inequality of the laws. For this reason, I shall take some pains to prove that the present degraded condition of that unfortunate race is produced by artificial causes, not by the laws of nature. Lydia Mariah Child, 1830. Channing apparently read the full text of Child's work and committed himself more robustly to abolition. His 1835 book, Slavery, was the result. One wonders why we don't have lectures and buildings and statues to Lydia Mariah Child. Names such as Thoreau, Emerson, Fuller, Alcott, Channing, Hedge, Peabody, Parker. Titles like Walden, Nature, Self-Reliance, Woman in the 19th Century, Okay, we learn about independence and the importance of the natural world and being inspired to find beauty in all things and beings, and we learn about an ever-revealing nature of faith. We even learn to appreciate the teachings of Eastern religions. And out of it all, I've only come across this one example, one of them, that said as plainly as you heard it now that African Americans can be understood as whole human beings outside of the context of white oppression, and that is where we should begin. History is written by the victors. Next week, Black Lives of UU will host the first Harper Jordan Memorial Symposium on a Black UU Theology. Let me read from their website about this event. The Harper Jordan Memorial Symposium responds to a longing on the part of many black Unitarian Universalists to more fully understand where we have been, who we are now, and how we hope to live out our Unitarian Universalism as black people. We are opening ourselves up to an articulation of Unitarian Universalism that is unapologetically black and proceeds from our co-creation and co-development such that we might proclaim and clarify a vision for a black Unitarian Universalism. Sadly, I cannot attend this event. It will, however, be live streamed and I've put the link outside. It will be an important moment in Unitarian and Universalist history, as important as any sermon by Channing or Parker. It is a moment of theological ownership that is not driven by history told only through the writings of white men. It is a point of arrival that says, this thing called Unitarian Universalism can be done beyond pointing nostalgically at a history that couldn't name non-whites as fully and equally human before naming them as fugitives and slaves, the other. The journey 
that Black Lives of UU is embarking on will not be easy. But it is a victory, and the result will be a new history. Many, many more voices within and beyond Unitarian Universalism need to do this. Only then will our history transcend our past. May it be so.